diamonds. So that's, if, if any of you happen to be taking notes, then I've done this really so as it makes it a little bit easier for you. But a number of months ago, I was particularly drawn to the, the passage about Jesus walking on water. And then, of course, Peter walking on the water. And then Jesus and Peter getting back in the boat. And the three accounts are found in Matthew 14, verses 22 to 36. There we are, it's up there. Uh, Mark 6, verses 45 to 56. And John 16, 16 to 24. And like all the accounts, you have the same miracle in the Bible. Um, or even the same parable, they're slightly different. And so what I've tried to do is put them all together in a combined version. So if you like, our morning's reading is this combined version. So as it was now evening time, Jesus immediately made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side of the lake while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already in the middle of the lake, a considerable distance from the land, about three to four miles from the shore. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them, and the boat was being buffeted by the large rough waves with the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against it. Jesus was watching all that was going on with the boat and the storm and shortly before dawn Jesus went out to them walking on the lake and was about to walk past them when the disciples saw him walking on the lake they were terrified it's a ghost they said and cried out in fear but Jesus immediately said to them take courage it is I don't be afraid Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? The disciples were now willing for Jesus to get into the boat. And when both he and Peter had climbed into the boat, the wind had died down. Then all in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. In fact, they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. However, immediately... They found the boat had crossed over the lake to enable them to anchor and land on the shore by Gennesaret, which is where they were heading. And as soon as they got out of the boat, the local people recognised Jesus and ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces and they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Well, 
What is the context and background to this story? Well, you've just had the feeding of the 5,000. So that's, you know, they've gone across the lake and, and so forth. But I want to go back a little bit further. In Matthew 14, verses 10 to 14, we read, He, and that's King Herod, had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them, and he healed their sick. So if you like, that's the background. That's why Jesus went across the lake. And I don't think, and they went and reported to Jesus, now when Jesus heard about John, is insignificant. This had an impact on Jesus. It's likely that Jesus and John grew up together, as children and teenagers. After all, their families were blood relatives. They were probably cousins. And it says in uh, Luke 1.36, Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. So it's highly unlikely that as they grew up, they had nothing to do with each other. In that sort of culture, that sort of age, it's, it's just inconceivable. That might happen you know, where we live, you know, where you sort of, somebody's up in Scotland and somebody's down in London or whatever, but that wasn't the case. This, these were close communities. But on top of that, John had fairly recently baptised Jesus. Amen. So there was, a, there was a whole lot of connection going on there. Now try putting yourself in their situation. Jesus' cousin has just been beheaded. So that the there is the disciple situation. Jesus' cousin has just been beheaded. An untimely death. And Jesus, along with the disciples, go off for an away day. Together, no doubt to grieve and process all that's going on. But the crowds all follow. And indeed, what's happened is they've run around the lake quicker than Jesus and the disciple managed to sail across the lake. Now how that worked, I don't know, but that's what it says. So instead of now being a time alone with Jesus, a time of solitude, of intimacy and rest, it's turned into a time of ministering to the needs of others yet again. And therefore, no rest. You know, granted, they have been part of an incredible miracle which they didn't understand, and they were still processing. So their day of rest had turned into one in service instead. And they probably didn't understand Jesus' compassion thing. You know, and they still didn't understand Jesus' compassion thing days and months later. We read in Matthew 19, verse 13, Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. 
So, that, you know, even after this, they're still sending people away from Jesus. Now, I guess in this whole account, they were looking at it from an earthly perspective. You know, they were used now to miracles. They were even used to performing miracles themselves. In Mark 6.30 we read, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to them all they had done and taught. But they were also still coming to terms with the death of John the Baptist. So with all this going on, Jesus tells them to get back into the boat and head for the other shore. So, yeah, just imagine it. They've, they've thought they're going to have a nice quiet day along with Jesus. There's all these crowds turned up. They've had to feed them all. They've had no relaxation. There's all this going on in their mind. What on earth is happening with John? We don't get all this, etc., etc., etc. Loads of why, why, whys. I'm sure we're there. And then Jesus says, well, I'm going to stay here. You head off back across the lake. So, they do that. And it seems as if that at some stage, how they expected it to happen, I don't know, but they were expecting Jesus to join them because it says in John 6, 17, by now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. So the fact is that they were all alone, without Jesus, in the dark, in the middle of the lake, in a storm, and they were struggling to make any progress. In fact, they were getting nowhere. Now, fine, there were some seasoned Galilean fishermen on board. Peter, James and John. They would have been used to storms on uh, Galilee. But I'm sure the landlubbers amongst them were thinking, I don't like this, this isn't very safe, I'm not very comfortable, etc, etc. And I wonder what the mood was in the boat. You put yourself in their situation. You've no idea what's been going on. It's dark, there's a storm. You're not used to being in a little boat on storms in the sea. Jesus hasn't joined them. You haven't a clue really what's going on. What would your mood be? I suspect at least there was disappointment. There was a feeling of being let down. There was confusion over <laughs> Jesus' action. No doubt there was amazement over the feeding of the 5,000. You know, how on earth did we do that? But probably they also felt lonely as Jesus had left them. It was dark and there was this storm going on. And they were struggling and they didn't know what to do. I suspect that some were grumbling and complaining as well. I'd be very surprised if they weren't. I don't really know, but I'll tell you what, I don't think they were an excited bunch returning from their latest mission trip singing Jesus songs. I doubt that that was the case. I want to bring out three main points. The first one is, Jesus intended to pass by. It's in this somewhat stranded and helpless situation that Jesus comes walking to them on the water. But note a very important point is that he intended to pass them by. To our surprise, in the midst of their struggling, confusion, hurt, pain, disappointment and tiredness, Jesus was intending to pass them by. Pretty weird. 
trying to think, is there any other situation that we read of in the Bible where Jesus sort of did something in that way where he tried to, you know, they didn't know what was going on. And immediately I thought about the two on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus says they approached the village where they were going and he acted as if he was going further. And in that account, if you remember at the end of John, or actually it's the end of Luke, um, he was, they, they were kept from recognising it was Jesus. Now I don't understand how that worked either, but they were kept from recognising it was Jesus and he made out as if he was going further. It's a similar sort of situation here. Now, why would Jesus behave like that? Well, Jesus always shows up in his time. But not always as we expect. Why is that the case? Well, a possible answer, there may be a number of answers, but one I want to explore this morning is it's actually to test our faith. Our love and our hunger for him. Did you know that just because people see and believe the miraculous does not necessarily mean that Jesus entrusts himself to them? We read in John 2, verse 24 to 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So there's times of testing that go on. Now, Arthur Kendall, in his book Understanding Theology, calls this type of thing the divine tease. And he describes it as this. God's setup, a test by which he sometimes disguises his presence and purpose at first in order to reveal our real feelings. One, it was a divine setup. Jesus set up both of those above events the lake and the road to Emmaus. He who <coughs> controls all storms did not turn up until the fourth watch of the night. That's just before dawn, it's the last watch. And still waited before he came to their rescue. They later realised that he was at the bottom of it all. On the road to Emmaus, they were kept from recognising him. But then it says, and he disappeared from their sight. The whole thing was God set up. Secondly, God disguises his presence and his purpose. His presence, when Jesus walked on the sea, his disciples thought it was a ghost. They didn't even realise it was Jesus. B, his purpose was to wait until the appointed time to reveal himself, and also to see what their reaction would be. So thirdly, at first... The whole point of the divine tease is to withhold the Lord's presence and purpose at first. Had the disciples recognised Jesus, there would have been no testing. So the essential purpose of the divine tease is to test us. So therefore, at first there's no hint that one, it really is the Lord, and two, that God is up to something. 
And fourthly, it's in order to show our feelings. The real feelings of the disciples became evident in the end. They said, truly, you are the Son of God. They worshipped him and said, truly, you are the Son of God. Also to quote from Bill Johnson, in Dreaming with God, in his third chapter, The Value of Mystery, he says, living with mystery is the privilege of our walk with Christ. The walk of faith is to live according to the revelation we have received. In the midst of experiences, we can't explain. Too many only obey what they understand, thus subjecting God to their judgments. God is not on trial. A true crosswalk is obeying where we have revelation in spite of the apparent contradiction we can't explain. To obey only when we see that there will be a favourable outcome is not obedience. Not understanding is okay. Restricting our spiritual life to what we understand is not. It's immaturity at best. God responds to faith, but will not surrender to our demands for control. So are there any other sort of passages where God does sort of odd things? Well, in Matthew 15, 21-22, you've got the faith of the, Cana- the, the faith of the Canaanite woman. That story of this, the, the Gentile woman, the Canaanite, who came to Jesus asking him to heal his daughter. And when you read it, Jesus takes the notice of her. She's talking to him and he's completely ignoring her. And then it goes on. Read the account yourself. Luke 11, verses 5 to 8, you've got the friend at midnight. You know, who kept bashing on the door at midnight and the person inside didn't want to open to begin with. Then in Luke 18, verses 1 to 8, you've got the persistent widow. Um, You know, she came before the judge and he had to keep coming and keep coming. Eventually the judge says, okay, I'll give you what you want. You know, this thing of persistence at times with God. And John 11, verses 1 to 16, you know, you've got the death of Lazarus. When the message came to Jesus, you know, Lazarus is ill, Jesus said, okay, I'm going to stay here another four days. He let it happen, because he had something better in mind. And in the Old Testament... Genesis 22, verses 1 to 19, you've got the account of God telling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. How stupid. You know, this is the person who will you know, be your seed. It's through nation, you know, all these nations that you're going to have, all these you know, children and descendants, count the stars, count the sand of the seashore, you know, that's it. Now God's saying kill him. Ridiculous. But it was testing Abraham. 1 Samuel 30, verses 1 to 6. Everything went pear-shaped for David. His wife and families and everyone else had got taken captive. The troops were wanting to kill David because they were angry with him. What does David do? He strengthens himself in the Lord. Then he has wisdom to know what to do. 1 Kings, verses 19, 10 to 18. You know, Elijah wanted to hear God's voice. But where was that voice? It wasn't in the way he expected it. It was just in that quiet, still voice. Completely different. It wasn't loud and raucous. It wasn't in the earthquake, the wind and the fire. It was just that quiet whisper 
that he could have missed it. Then in 2 Chronicles 32 verse 31, you've got that bit that says with Hezekiah, it says God left him to test him, to see what was in his heart. So my next point is unrecognised and terrified. Not only was Jesus about to pass them by, but they didn't recognise him either. They thought this was a ghost, and they were terrified as a result. Have you noticed that God often turns up in unexpected ways? In which we might not recognise him. Ways in which we might even at first find offensive. Speaking in tongues. Toronto Blessing, if you've heard of that. Laughter. Choking. Blowing bubbles in church. Party poppers. What are we doing? You know, God doesn't do things like that, doesn't he? You can't put God in a box. He does what he likes, when he likes. And won't conform to our preconceived ideas. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. If that wasn't true, he wouldn't be God. Psalm 135 verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. And Nebuchadnezzar came to understand this and realise in Daniel 4, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me. If you know the story, Nebuchadnezzar actually went mad and he lived out like an animal in the fields. And that was, you know, he was the king. And that's what happened to him because he didn't recognize God. So at the end of all that, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? You know, the Pharisees had God all sorted out. The Pharisees knew their Bible. They they didn't have the New Testament, but they had the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament back to front and inside out. They got God nicely in their little box. And yet they missed the greatest revelation of God there has ever been. They did not recognise Jesus as being God. As somebody has said, God offends the mind to reveal the heart. God offends the mind to reveal the heart. And so the disciples here, they are there in the middle of the lake. And it says that Jesus tries to calm their fears by telling them it's him. Don't be afraid. But how well did that work? After all, it's not every day, even for the disciples, you see somebody walking on the water, in the dark, 
on a rough, windy sea at that. In fact, I'm not aware of any biblical precedent for that. I can't think of any account, if you can, tell me. But I can't think of any account of something like that happening before. And actually, I can't think of any account of something happening like it afterwards. Seems to be a bit of a one-off. So, put yourself in this situation. How would you have reacted? You've got this, you know, the waves are all terrible. You've got, it's, it's dark. You've got this person coming across the water. You think it's a ghost. And this, what you think is a ghost, cries out and says, you know, don't be afraid, it's me. Peter, he says, well, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you. I mean, I just don't get that. <laughs> so Jesus said to him, well, come. So Peter took him at his word, got out the boat, and started walking across the water. I, I, I can't actually imagine that. You've got the boat going up and down, and you've got Peter, you know, t- taking Jesus at his word, and gets out of the boat. Anyhow, now we all know that Peter had a habit of acting without thinking. That was part of lovely Peter's character. And he still had that months later at the arrest of Jesus. In John 18.10 we read, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants, cutting off his right ear. So Peter still did, in quotes, stupid things later on. Okay? So was the response of Peter's faith or impulse? Well, whatever it was, and by the way, Jesus called it faith, he was prepared to take Jesus at his word and put his trust in Jesus. He believed and he was willing to put Jesus to the test. However, once he realised what he was actually doing, he was afraid and he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. Needless to say, Jesus didn't leave him there, but immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? So thirdly, invited into the boat. So what was the impact of Peter's impulsive act of faith? Well, it enabled and led others to believe. Those that were looking on, observing from a distance, saw, believed and invited Jesus into their boat. As a consequence, their lives from that moment, along with Peter's, were changed. The storm stopped. It says, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. So they meet, they they experience peace and rest straight away. Now I don't understand that. The storm stopped and the boat immediately reached the shore where they were headed to. And yet they were in the middle of the lake. Well, that's a pretty good miracle. Okay? Two miracles in fact. So in this story we actually see Four distinct miracles taking place. One, we've got Jesus walking on the water. Two, Peter walking on the water. Three, the storm stopping. And fourthly, the boat immediately being at the shore they were headed to. 
Was one greater than the other? Was Peter's faith in getting out of the boat greater than the other disciples asking Jesus to come aboard? I don't think so. You might disagree. I don't think so. But rather, we see the following. The test revealed all of their hearts. And the result was they all believed and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Next, Peter's faith, resulting in pioneering, impulsive action, did something special for him. And as he began to doubt, he saw more of God's keeping power, mercy and goodness. And then, as a result of Peter's actions, it enabled others to believe too. But they didn't all copy Peter and jump out of the boat, which they could have done, but they didn't. They did what some might argue is the more sensible thing, and they said to Jesus, you come on. It's, it, it really is you. You come and get in our boat. Alright? So then, instead of a miracle being exclusive to only one, Peter, now all the disciples experienced two more miracles. So it could be argued that the greater blessing was gained by those who stayed in the boat. But the key to their miracle was that the moment they recognised it was Jesus, they said, come aboard. Had they not said, come aboard, they would not have experienced that blessing and those two miracles that took place. And it would have just been left as Peter's miracle, walking on the water. And then Jesus wants us all to have peace and rest, and they will only come through faith in him and the willingness to invite him into the vessels of our lives, of our situations, and whatever is going on in our life. There is a line in John Newton's hymn, which is entitled, Begone Unbelief. It has the line in it, With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Some of those of you who are older might remember that. Hello? That's my notes up. So what can we learn from this? Well, I've got at least 11 points. Very quick. Number one. Events will happen in our lives that we don't understand and cause us to doubt and be confused. Two. Sometimes even seeking Jesus may not give us the comfort or answer we hope for. Three, he might direct us in a certain way, only for more struggles and uncertainty to arise. Fourthly, he may not rescue us straight away, but leave us to our own devices, and in the process, we get nowhere. You've got to keep pressing it. <laughs> okay, we'll get there in the end. Is it, is it going? Number three? Uh, I'm All right, never mind. Uh, so, fourthly, was he may not rescue us straight away but leave us to our own devices, and in the process, we get nowhere. 
Fifth, he will be watching though. It's important. He will be watching though. And when he does come to us, it may not be in a manner or form as we might have expected. We might even be terrified. Six, he sets us up so as we can discover for ourselves what is truly in our hearts. God offends the mind to reveal the heart. And each test we pass strengthens our faith and trust in him and his faith and trust in us. It's like bringing up kids. As, as they get older, you can entrust them with more things. And if, you do, if they do that well, you can give them more things to do. Um, so the impulsive pioneer of faith should expect that when you realise that what you are doing sorry, when you realise that what you are doing, sincere doubts may occur and you may even begin to go under but call out to Jesus and he will rescue you Eighth, pioneering faith however has great impact on others who are watching and leads them to faith and experience of the miraculous as well Nine, we don't all have to be pioneers. Or even to do, try to do the same things as pioneers. But, tenth, the minute we recognise it is Jesus and invite him into our precarious situation, we, along with others, collectively experience the peace and rest that we wanted all along. And... A little quote from Oswald Chambers in his book, My Utmost from His Highest. It's in the reading for October 21st. He has a little commentary there on what Peter, on this account of Peter. He says, Walking on water is easy for someone with impulsive boldness. Not too sure about that, but (laughs) that's what he says. For somebody with impulsive boldness, walking on water is easy. But walking on dry land as a disciple of Jesus Christ, is something altogether different. Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus, but he followed him at a distance on dry land. We do not need the grace of God to withstand crises. Human nature and pride are sufficient for us to face the stress and strain magnificently. But it does require the supernatural grace of God to live 24 hours of every day as a saint. Going through what may appear to be drudgery and living what may appear to be an ordinary, unnoticed and ignored existence as a disciple of Jesus. But what happened when the boat got to the other shore? Immediately the people recognised there that it was Jesus. And so the disciples who stayed in the boat suddenly are immediately involved in miracles and healings and so forth with Jesus. In a moment, hopefully, we can sing a song called Oceans, which is relevant to this. And it has a line in it. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters, wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander. And my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Saviour.
Now I don't know where you are in your walk with Christ, in your walk even in this church. You may be looking at some of your leaders who are pioneering things and thinking, I'm not sure I can be part of that. I'm not even sure if I want to be part of that. In fact, I'm not even sure that it's Jesus that is going on. Well, my challenge to you is simply to say, to recognise, hang on, this is Jesus. It might not quite be what I expected, but God is clearly on this. God is clearly moving in them. Okay, let them do the walking on the water, but don't miss out yourself by saying, I'm not going to take part in this. Recognise it is Jesus. And say, Jesus, come into my life. I want you to be part of this. I want to be part of what is going on. I want to be part of this team. And I want to see you doing even greater and greater and greater things. It could be that God is asking you to actually get out of the boat. To try something that you've never done before. And you're actually petrified. You say, I don't want to do this. Jesus' word to you is, it's me. Don't be afraid. Your word to him should be, well if it is you, I'm going to give it a go. (laughs) And then when you give it a go, you think, what am I doing? You simply cry out and say help, and he will. So, can we do oceans? We're singing oceans, and while we're, while we're singing this, I'd, I'd like you please just to be asking.